A note for listeners, some may find the subject matter of this podcast to be triggering or upsetting. Please take care of yourselves. I'm Sadie. And I'm Alex. And this is Glass Gateway. A podcast about crystal meth, substance use, and life in Saskatchewan, Canada. This podcast has been made possible through the generous funding of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Today we're going to talk about intergenerational trauma and how substance use is often passed down between family members along with trauma. Just a warning, this episode will include discussions of drug use, mental illness, and violence. Intergenerational trauma is also known as transgenerational trauma and describes when trauma is passed between family members, particularly parents to their children. Trauma symptoms can influence how a parent raises their child and trauma can also be transferred epigenetically. Over the years, several researchers have identified that substance use is more likely. For example, Epstein found in their 2020 study that children and teens of parents who use substances chronically were more likely to use themselves. Of note, even when parents stopped using before becoming parents, their previous substance use appeared to impact the children's use during adolescence. Research suggests that there is both a genetic risk and an environmental risk. If substance use is commonplace and relatively acceptable in child's home. Today's episode, we spoke to a grandmother and granddaughter about their experiences with trauma and substance use. We also talked to Laura about her experience with intergenerational substance use. Laura's real name is not used in this interview to protect her confidentiality. I'll let Laura introduce herself here. I am a recovering addict with my drug of choice being crystal meth. I am a year and three months into my recovery and sobriety from such drug. And a little bit about me, music's a huge part of my family. I play a lot of guitar and I sing. Uh, I enjoy sports as well. And I just care a lot about my family, friends, everyone who's been there to support me and vice versa. Meth was a big part of what I used to develop a false sense of confidence because I am someone who has struggled with that immensely in her life. I also used it to fuel my eating disorder, so that was a problem as well because they went so hand in hand. With my diagnosis that I have, which is bipolar affective, it can be a really dangerous mix because you never know when you're going to get sent right into that state of mania. When we met with Laura, she describes how substance use and mental health impacts her family. So there's a lot of alcoholism on my dad's side as well as my grandma. So my grandpa on my dad's side is an ex-alcoholic. He quit drinking in his like 50s and he's 80 now. And it's great. Like, we talk when we talk. Like, we actually talk. It's very nice. And he's doing great, as well as my step-grandmother. And then there's my grandma on my mom's side. She drinks quite a bit, but after kind of getting a bit unwell, she's slowed down a lot. But her and I have always been super close like that. Like, just every time we talk, we're just cracking jokes the entire time. And it's, it's great. Yeah, I would say my dad, but he does struggle with alcoholism. Yeah, his struggles are a lot more minimal. I guess if we could go on, like, just... Mm-hmm. He's more of a six-pack-a-night type of guy, but he quits all the time for a few months, and then he'll go 
hard again for a few nights and then slow down and then quit. So it's a bad cycle. But he doesn't have many people in his life. And it's kind of just his vice that I've come to accept. Like I was used to like drinking around hockey games and stuff like that as a kid. And it was just normal, right? So I don't look at it like he has a severe problem. I would like to see him deal with it before he's like 70, of mm-hmm. course. But I also can see the ways that he controls it and practices controlling it, which isn't something to glorify. My grandma on my dad's side used to sell crack cocaine. So she's been to prison, which is really hard. Um, my mom's side is a lot more the mental health and the addiction piece coming from her primarily. My mom has always seemed to have had a mental illness, and she's always seemed off in that sense. Like, even when she's at her most sober, she's still talking like what we call garbledygook, or um, just going on these random silly tangents. Just like it never makes sense sometimes, but that's just kind of how she is now. And like, I've learned to accept it as much as I want to try to help her. She uses fentanyl, heroin, meth, crack. She uses everything. She's definitely a poly addict, you could say. And, like, I can talk to her in every state. It's just about how I talk to her that I have to really be careful with at times because she's incredibly thin right now, like, pushing 80 pounds. So I just don't want to say something that's going to make her not eat or not go to sleep that night or not think about the things that she needs, which is right now just food, shelter, clothing, basically, is where she's at. Yeah, it's it's hard. Like, I, I just wish she could stay with me and I could dry her out and send her off to like Esteban and just fix her up but I just can't do that. Laura described how despite her mother's addiction she's still her mother. Yeah and somebody so close to you that like I barely got to know in my young life because I'm grateful for this my dad got full custody of me when he was three and I'm so relieved that that happened but it also kept me away from her a decent amount and that wasn't really healthy either even though she wasn't well like I think I should have seen her more. And that part gets to me a little bit. I think that's one thing people need to remember is like your family is still your family, even though they change, they develop, they grow, they shift. Like there's still someone that you need to reach out to at some point. Dealing with her own addiction, Laura described that there's something affirming about the knowledge around intergenerational transmission of addiction. I feel a lot less alone. I mean, I look at my family's addictions and go like, wow, like I... I came from this place, so clearly it's not a huge coincidence that I ended up where I did, and that's probably the most comforting aspect. And then from there, it's like, well, what do I need to do inside and outside, like perspective and environmentally, like just to kind of keep things going at a decent pace. And I know I don't need to take care of everyone. I get that. But I just like to. I just do. And I've met family members who are like that. And I just, I fucking look up to them. Like, I just see them as these pristine people. And, like, for someone who's newly clean, like, I feel dirty all the time. I feel gross. I feel like I look scabby and, like, I'm got bugs crawling out of me. And, like, I feel those emotions. I feel them every day. But 
it's better to feel them than to just ignore them. Because there's this shared experience within my family, I'm able to understand myself better. As Kurt et al. discussed in their study completed in 2020, the familial transmission of substance use risk should receive more attention in prevention programs, as there are ways in which the impacts of intergenerational transmission of substance use can be prevented or lessened for youth. Laura described some of the supports she feels are needed for families dealing with intergenerational trauma. I think the biggest support is going to be starting with some like trauma therapy and then moving on to that group family therapy where you've got everyone involved because then you've done some care for each person initially. And then from then on, you can move together as a family, try to decide like what decisions need to be made and stuff like that. For herself, Laura has worked to get to a place of acceptance with her family's substance use issues. And like I've learned to accept it as much as I want to try to help her. I know she has to do that herself. So that acceptance piece is such a huge, it's a challenging place to get to. I think mm-hmm. it probably, you know, comes and goes. Some days we're maybe more accepting than others. To you, I want to want good things for them and myself being in their life, like, when I'm well, does enrich it. So I expect myself to be there. It's just how it is. This like severe, like it feels like knives are being drawn against your body for how bad you want your mom to get better and your dad to just relax. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like that's the front, hey? Because really sitting in that pain is too difficult. Mm-hmm. It can be too difficult. So to sit in that pain daily, right? So it's just like, Oh, yeah, my mom and dad are like that. Laura ended her interview with us by sharing some of the things she has learned and is proud of in her own journey. I will say that I'm proud of the boundaries that I'm developing because they're something that I've never had before. And I think that without my addiction, I probably never would have developed so soon. Well, because they always add to one story. And if we try to ignore that, then we lose some of their most important parts. We also spoke to Maureen and Keisha, grandmother and granddaughter, who are both dealing with addiction and have seen how it passes through generations of their family. Their names have been changed here to protect their identity. I'll let them introduce themselves here. First, Maureen shared her story of addiction. I I, I was pretty desperate. So, and in a lot of pain. Um, so my daughter's, my two daughters' father, um, you know, was in and out of jail. We were together since we were 13. We were together 20 years. And then in and out of the gangs. So we were, you know, drug, drugs were always in the house and, and gangs and stuff. And um, just a really dark world. I seen a lot of violence. I was in and out of jail. And then my our kids got apprehended. And then just using excessively for so long. And then he got murdered, actually. And by three, well, he shot four guys and then it just escalates, right? Like it just escalated. Our lifestyle just got scarier and scarier. And, um, and then he went to jail for that, but then two other people took the rap. So he actually walked on that and then he got out. And then, so the last year of his life was pure hell. We had this house on Avenue K and he was, the hit was on him. Like at any, any day, one of us were going to be killed. So 
the girls were gone. They were in foster homes and we were still trying to. I never had an education at a grade eight, uh, never could hold a job. So that's just kind of what we did, right? We supported ourselves through just drugs and stuff. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, and then it was just, we got, we did a lot of drugs and, and then just barricaded ourselves into this house with all these other really scary people. <laughs> it was just a blur. And then, and then it happened, right? He was at the, at the apartment building and I was in a hotel and I had one of our dealers like put me in a hotel and, you know, that's what they do. They'll put me in a hotel and give me a whole bunch of stuff and a phone and said, rifle this out. You know what I mean? So that's where I'd sell all the stuff. Well, it was almost like a setup. And then um, he was at this other place and he got, he got the hit, right? There, it was a hit and three guys jumped him and brutally took him out. And, and then it was after that, that, yeah, just went downhill kind of in psychosis, stayed high. I, I don't even know how I survived, honestly. I did that for like two years. I just kind of bounced around. I was in and out of jail. Um, it was a big blur. And then I literally came to on a bus going to Vancouver, like in a drug-induced psychosis. And uh, I had a welfare check from Saskatchewan and they traded it in back then they used to do that a lot. They traded, they get traded it in for a bus ticket to Vancouver. They were sending everybody from Saskatchewan to BC. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, that's what they were doing. If you could, you know, so I just knew I needed to get out of here because I knew everybody here. And I was just there. It was just too hard. And that was the beginning. And, um, yeah, so it was, I was very malnourished by then. I was a hundred and I think, I, I think I was like, about a, what one time when I was in jail, they weighed me, I was skin and bone. I was 118. Like I was just, there was nothing to me and I'm five, eight. So it was just, I didn't eat, you know, I really literally didn't care if I died. Do you know, I just, you just don't, you give up, right. I'd given up and I just didn't die. I don't know. So when I came to and I was going to BC, we stopped in Golden at, and I had 20 bucks. And I remember buying a sandwich and bumming a smoke off somebody. And this guy looked at me and he goes, what the hell are you running from? Holy shit. <laughs> you know, I had a cap on. He's like, what the F are you running from? Because I, I literally had a big bald spot on the back of my head because I wore a cap all the time. And I, and I would just always do this, like in psychosis, I would just move, you know, so I rubbed my, my head off and my, my head, my hair, <laughs> and just a track suit, you know what I mean, back in the day. And, um, and I just remember he, when he said that to me, it provoked a thought. I went to the back of the bus and I go, well, what am I running from? And I was like, myself. I was constantly running from myself. I was never, I couldn't get enough speed in me. I just, I couldn't stop. It was just, and then it, it just hit me. And I remember kind of crying in that, 
in that moment and just kind of like praying. Yeah, it's emotional. Like, even though that was 2007, like talking about it still comes up because something happened. Like there was a moment of clarity. I've been in recovery for 13 years. So, but uh, better late than never. And, And then just kind of... I uh, went back to school and I've been going to school Beautiful. for it seems like 10 years. <laughs> I became teachable. I surrendered. <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know very much. <laughs> but, you know, it takes what it takes. So I've raised pretty much since sh- she was two. You know, struggled uh, with, you know, her mom. I've tried to support. It's been a balancing act, trying to support her mom and her at the same time and then keep everybody safe. And Keisha. I'm only 14. I kind of just like started drinking when I was like 12. But I've been in and out of Kilburn Hall since I was 13. And I finally got out like two months ago. Since I got out. And then I went to treatment twice. Yeah, grandma. I've only been sober for two months. <laughs> How did you get here? Um. Well, honestly, I don't think I would have been got sober if I didn't go to jail. Some stuff's necessary for your best good. It's kind of why I'm sober, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still working on it. It's still really hard. I'm still getting triggered by things. Maureen described how she understands addiction. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, um, like speaking on intergenerational trauma, I think, you know, my my cookum who attended residential school was an alcoholic. Um, my mother, who was part of the 60s scoop, uh isn't yeah she she's a recovering alcoholic i became an alcoholic and an addict my daughter and it just stems from such a line of like the inability to parent or feel your feelings and we never were introduced to like healthy coping skills you know kind Mm -hmm. of thing so addiction just came with it like for me, it was normal growing up in a house, a party house, right? It runs rampant in, in so many Indigenous communities. I'm I'm a status, well, I'm a mixed ancestry. My mother is Cree and my, my father is Irish, but I am a registered band member with Red Pheasant. So there's just lots, lots of healing that needs to take place, you know, in, in, in our family. And we're trying, you know, like... Um, you know, removing the the drugs and alcohol is like the beginning. That gives us half a chance. But like, I mean, there's zero chance with that drugs and alcohol in the mix. But without it, it's half a chance. And they're still learning how to, you know, feel those uncomfortable feelings and learning how to not keep secrets, you know, and and being honest with with ourselves and other people and then honoring our own journey, right? I was spent. Right. And I was like in full blown psychosis for a while. And then, um, yeah, so we can come back from anywhere. Right. But it literally, uh, it took me, um, just being in someone else's home for, for a year before I got my head out of my ass. Like literally, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Just to kind of thaw out because I was, um, I was, yeah, we're just, just raw. Right. And it was a good place to be. It was very structured. It was a group home. I did really basic cleaning and cooking just to kind of went to meetings, seen some therapists and then, yeah. And then made it back here because my granddaughter was born. 
right? And then my daughter was struggling with addiction, you know? So I tell too sometimes, like her first couple years were in noon meetings. Like I just took her to meetings with me at noon and at night. And that's what we did. And in between time, had coffee with other women in the fellowship, other people, you know, and, and, and things like that. So she was like, uh, my recovery buddy, <laughs> she was like two, but and kept, she kept me clean, honestly, you know, in a way, because it was like, no, one, there was no one else to look after her. Her mom was using and it was, um, it was scary, you know? And then, yeah, it was just a matter of time before, um, she got apprehended, you know, uh, at her mom's place. While Keisha continues to struggle, Maureen works hard to help her. She came home and, um, and then, you know, it was like two in the morning and we were talking and, you know, good things don't come, come about when she's drinking because she hurt herself, you know? And so we just talked about that and I'm just trying to like, you know, like girl, you're worth so much more. Right. There's, you know, like, so. We talked and just told her I loved her and please, you know, just we just got, like you were saying, we got to learn to care for ourselves, right? Like- During the interview, Maureen's daughter shows up asking for a bag. She is currently using, and Maureen struggles with how to support her daughter and her granddaughter. So her mom, her mom is outside and wanting her bag. Like is okay. she here right now? See, and then this is kind of part of it, right? Is there's always kind of trying to manage the unmanageability. It's trying to keep like my daughter and of course I, I want her to be healthy, but at the same time, she, she's just not ready to, it's not even about quitting right now. It's just about taking what, whatever she can. Do you know what I mean? Just to feed the hole in her soul. You know, she's got a, a big wound and she's not ready to feel it. But in that, in the midst of all that is constant chaos, you know, constant chaos and it's at risk a lot it's really unsafe like she's used with her mom you know and so i have to really monitor now you know like that kind of situation said herself my mom is one of my biggest triggers she told me that when she was in treatment because they she wants to be close with her mom i get it but under those circumstances is really dark. It's a dark, it's and dangerous. Been gone to jail and has been in really scary situations, running up and down 22nd into oncoming traffic. So that's we you know, that was one of the worst case scenarios. And I think it's important that she's reminded of that. That's what happens. Maureen talked about the genetic and environmental transmission of addiction. Not everybody um inherits addiction through um genetics you know like it's uh, it's uh it's mystical kind of thing right like people can and then there's other families where everyone can use and someone can be uh get clean and just have whatever it is in them or their purpose is is something different right i'm i'm kind of like you know i I healed through ceremony and culture, and I trust that everyone has their own individual contract with creator. And whatever that is, is between them and creator. 
you know, like, and I've really come to terms with that with my girls and, and it's like, whatever they need to learn and whatever they need to go through is between them and creator. Um, but as far as like misconceptions, um, it's just, we just never know. I mean, yes, if we're, you know, uh, predisposed or, and we have a toxic environment and we grow up like the chances are, you know what I mean? We're, we're going to pick up those coping skills too, right? We're going to be like, Kate, screw it. I'll use medicate. Cause it's just a form of medication. Really. It's a form of anesthetic. You know, that's usually people I use cause it felt good. I drank for the effect I drank because of how it made me feel right. Uh, made me uh, feel better about myself. So I think it's important for other families that are struggling to just help or, or find help with other families that have gone through the similar struggles and pain, right? Because it's devastating to watch your children, grandchildren have to like suffer. Well, you got to try and it gets better. Yeah, that's what I would say. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I just to not give up like, What's that saying in the in recovery? Don't give up five minutes before the miracle happens. We ended our interview with Maureen and Keisha asking what they are most proud of. My, my grandma. I don't know. I don't know that I'm like actually trying to be sober and like trying to better my life at such a young age because I've done so many drugs like more than my grandma done. Yeah, she's doing good and she has every right to be proud of herself right now. She's had to go through a lot of shit too. You know, I'm proud that we're still here. You know, I'm, pr- I'm proud of my recovery today because I've had to really work hard for it. Like the, the first couple of years were really, really hard. I mean, there's still hard times, but I have tools today, right? I don't have to go and pick up. In today's episode, we were gifted with the time and stories of Keisha, Maureen, and Laura. We appreciate their reflections on the intergenerational transmission of addiction. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take the time to respond to the survey linked with this episode. I'm Sadie. And I am Alex. This has been another episode of Glass Gateway.